The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Also, please take special care when listening to this episode as it includes graphic depictions relating to self-harm and suicide. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. My victims were going to be my parents. I wanted to make my parents deal with making me. I wanted to have them deal with creating a monster. All right, so we're going to venture into a little different space in this episode because while we were researching cases to cover, we came across a TED Talk video on YouTube, a speech delivered by a man named Aaron Stark. Now, you may have heard of him or even watched this exact same video. It's one of the most popular presentations of the entire TED Talk series and currently has over 14 million views. Within those 7 minutes and 28 seconds, Aaron captivates a live audience, providing a first-hand account of how he almost became a school shooter. The dissertation is powerful and has the potential to bring even the most stoic and unflappable individual to tears. His story has gained a massive amount of attention in recent years, and for good reason. A case this widely covered is normally something we'd steer clear of, but we knew there was more to his story, and we weren't interested in regurgitating a piece that's already been done, nor did we have any interest in just scratching the surface on this one. We wanted to dig deeper. We wanted to learn how this man's environment pushed him toward wanting to commit one of the most heinous and unforgivable crimes imaginable. So we reached out, and after some back and forth regarding scheduling, Aaron agreed to speak with us. My name is Aaron Stark. I am 43 years old, and I'm in Denver, Colorado. Now, if the title didn't make it obvious already, had Aaron carried out his original plans of mass murder, it goes without saying that he wouldn't be chatting with us on a Zoom call from his living room. Aaron Stark has never divulged the entire dark truth about what brought him to that deadly mindset. Much of the information he provided throughout our discussion has never been made public until now. So without further ado, here is our exclusive unfiltered interview with Aaron Stark, the man who almost became a school shooter. So, before diving in and in the interest of full transparency, we were up front with Aaron. We prefaced our interview by letting him know we'd be asking some pretty tough questions. Questions that Good Morning America, CNN, and all the other talk shows he'd been a guest on had conveniently failed to ask, mainly because those in-between details of these chronicles aren't pretty, and the answers to these uncomfortable questions are simply too raw for mainstream television. We were told not to hold back and that no questions were off limits. So that's exactly what we did. Well, if we're going to start with the dark part, we have to start at the very, very beginning. The very, very first memory I ever have in my entire life is me laying on my bloody mom's body while I'm looking up at my father. Well, he has a cross-shaped tire iron in his hand and I'm screaming at him, you just killed my mom. Aaron describes the time that he was born until the age of five as a Stephen King novel. 
His early childhood was chaotic, turbulent, and extremely violent. She wasn't dead, but she was beaten bloody and unconscious because my father was the most violent, depraved, and disgusting person I've ever met in my entire life. I watched my mom getting beaten and raped in front of me. There was a time when we came home from the grocery store, me and my mom and my older brother came in the house and my father was hiding under the kitchen table. And he burst out from under the table, knocked my mom down, beat her, raped her in front of us, and then sat there afterwards laughing while she's crying in a pool of blood. That's the earliest years of my life. Of course, Aaron was just a baby, but these moments were burnt into his psyche as early as infancy. The emotional damage of watching one's mother get beaten within an inch of her life is unimaginable, and in most cases, the trauma irreversible. Aaron's father was a Vietnam veteran who suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. His experiences in the war changed him for the worse. The other effects included alcoholism, the physical abuse of his wife, and the tormenting of his children. In short, Aaron's dad had become a monster. His brother was two years older than him, and their mother would manage to get her five- and seven-year-old boys away from their savage father time and time again. But somehow, he would always track them down each time they escaped. Me and my mom and my older brother, we were living in a, we were in a battered woman shelter because he had beaten the hell out of my mom and she went there to survive. My father had came up in a car and managed to kidnap my brother and I. He had convinced us to get into his car. We were little. And he called my mom and told her that I was dead and my brother was going to be dead if she didn't show up at this restaurant. He had been stalking them. And while Aaron and his brother were playing in the front yard of the women's shelter, their father pulled up and forced them into his car. While being held hostage, Aaron remembers being confused. He didn't understand why his father was telling his mother that he was dead when he was sitting right next to him in the passenger seat. Despite the social worker's pleas for her not to go, Aaron's mother did go to that Denny's restaurant in Denver, Colorado, but almost didn't come out alive. The shelter tells her not to go. It's a trap. My mom says, no, no, fuck that. My, my kids are dying. I need to go over there and get them. So she leaves the Battle Woman shelter. She goes over to the restaurant to meet my father. They're arguing at the table. He stands up and flips the table over and has his tire iron. That was his classic weapon he liked to use, his big X-shaped tire iron. Had that in his hand and picked it up over his head. And right then, everybody else in the restaurant whipped out a gun and pointed it at his head because the Battle Woman shelter had called ahead and filled the place up with undercover police officers. It seems he likely would have killed her in public without hesitation had the shelter not informed the police before she had arrived. Days after his father was taken away in handcuffs, Aaron remembers a clipping that had been cut out of a local newspaper, an article summarizing the arrest. A photo of Aaron's father was shown with shotguns pointed at his head as officers let him out of that Denny's restaurant. He was arrested for trying to kill his wife with a tire iron and did a small stint behind bars. But that was the usual. He spent so much time in and out of jail, more often than not for domestic violence. And following that incident at the restaurant, Aaron's mother decided she needed to physically remove the boys from the violent man and environment while she had the chance. She took the boys to stay with their grandparents up in Oregon. But the brothers would only be there for just under a year. The first time, that is. That was because the new living arrangements wouldn't be much better than the ones before and in some ways were arguably much worse. Aaron's uncle also lived with their grandparents in Oregon, and he was a convicted sex offender. Aaron and his brother essentially traded one toxic environment for another. That's also where a lot of the abuse and the disgustingness comes down from, because trauma rolls downhill, and that was the hill my trauma was rolling from. 
In the short time the boys were there, Aaron witnessed things that no person, never mind a child, should ever be subjected to. One day while visiting his aunt, he looked out the window only to see something so disturbing it would stay with him for the rest of his life. During the year I was out there, we were at one of my aunt's houses. Me, my brother, and my grandma were inside. My uncle was in the truck outside with a four-year-old and the four-year-old's mom raping both of them, actively raping them. Aaron wasn't even six years old when he describes witnessing his uncle rape a woman and her preschool-aged daughter right in front of him. Once Aaron's aunt noticed what her husband was doing outside, she yelled out in a panic, begging him to stop. Mid-sexual assault, the man got out of his truck and stormed into the house to confront his sister. And then came inside and kicked my pregnant aunt in the stomach. The children, of course, were present for all of this. It was at this point young Aaron and his brother packed up their belongings and moved back to Denver, but only temporarily. They moved every six months or so after that, and never for a positive reason. They bounced back and forth between Oregon and Colorado near constantly. The two boys never had a permanent residence while growing up. In the time they were away, Aaron's mother met a new man who would soon become Aaron's stepfather. But the cycle of drugs and violence would repeat once again as the family exchanged one tumultuous home life for another, the perpetual cycle continuing. My stepdad was just a criminal, but when I met him, He was in prison for strong-arm robbery. He had gone to prison for four years because evidently he had taped some dude to a chair and beat him with a pistol. And then when he got out, that's when they started stealing boosting delivery trucks and also massive amounts of crack cocaine, like massive amounts. Aaron's mother was an addict, and so was his stepdad. In their drug-fueled altercations, Aaron watched his stepdad beat his mother in the same way his father once had. To support their habits and afford a roof over their heads for the family, the two would rob FedEx trucks and department stores. They would then sell whatever they stole at local flea markets. They went from Stephen King to Scarface. They went from extreme violence to crack cocaine getting rocked up in front of me and people stealing delivery trucks, going to toy stores, robbing them. Aaron was too young to fully grasp what was going on at the time, though ironically, He does recall having one good Christmas as a result of his mother's illegal and illicit activities. But any semblance of a normal childhood would soon be disrupted before anyone got too comfortable. I'd have a Christmas where I'd have every Thundercats toy and every He-Man toy and every all the play sets and all that kind of stuff. But then two days later, someone would burst in my room at four o'clock in the morning with a duffel bag saying, we have five minutes to grab all your shit. We need to get out of here. Drug deals, robberies, eviction notices, police at the home constantly regular visits from Child Protective Services. This was the reality for Aaron Stark and his seven-year-old brother. They were forced to grow up fast, and there was no discretion in the home. Aaron watched his mother as she stood over the stove cooking crack cocaine more than she did a hot meal for the children. He even became vaguely familiar with the manufacturing process himself at just six years of age. One day, while in elementary school, Aaron grabbed a baggie of his mother's crack cocaine and brought it in for show and tell. I just thought it was medicine. It was the medicine my, my parents used and made and sold. Social services obviously got involved after that incident, but before they could even fully investigate the matter, the family had disappeared and was nowhere to be found. They were headed back to Oregon to stay with his grandparents while his mother laid low. The only constant in Aaron's life were his comic books, something he used to escape the cyclone of confusion and chaos that was his childhood. 
comic books. I'd take my comic books with me. Those would go from state to state to state. That was it. My toys would disappear. My clothes would disappear. My bed would vanish. I wouldn't have any of the regular stuff that a kid would have, but I'd carry crates of X-Men comics. Aaron was partial to the Marvel character Archangel, but Nightcrawler was his favorite. A happy-go-lucky practical joker whose superpower was teleportation. Looking back, it's easy to see why Aaron gravitated toward the Nightcrawler comics. In many ways, he wished he could teleport himself far, far away from his family and all of the noise. But instead of vanishing to another dimension, Aaron Stark would soon decide that he was going to make everyone else disappear. The thought of harming other people wouldn't come until years down the road, but a powder keg of anger was gradually building inside of him one day at a time, and everyone has their eventual breaking point. And if violence is quite literally all a child ever sees, knows, and learns, but what happens when that child grows up and decides he's not going to take any of it anymore? This episode is proudly brought to you by Fabric by Gerber Life. Ah, finally, springtime is near. As the weather warms up and the flowers begin to bloom outside, it's the perfect time to take a fresh look at your financial planning. And if you've been meaning to get life insurance but have been putting it off, now is the time. With Fabric by Gerber Life, it's so quick and easy to help protect your family's future so that you can get back to enjoying life. Look, I've talked about it before. Not a single one of us is guaranteed another tomorrow. So plan ahead for your family's sake. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. And Fabric's new lower prices could mean potentially significant savings over other providers with great quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a buck a day. So protect your family today with Fabric by Gerber Life. Apply today in just 10 minutes at meetfabric.com slash invisible. That's meetfabric.com slash invisible. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash invisible. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. This episode is also proudly brought to you by Babbel. Look, for most of us, learning a second language in high school or college wasn't exactly the high point of our academic careers. Though those two years of Spanish actually did help when I got stranded in Tijuana after a night out with the boys. But that's neither here nor there. Now thanks to Babbel, the language learning app that's sold at more than 10 million subscriptions, There's an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language. And whether you'll be traveling abroad or connecting in a deeper, more meaningful way with family, or you just have some free time, Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. I just signed up to learn French, and I love how easy the lessons are. Bonjour. Well, I mean, it actually sounds like bouju in Ojibwe. I'm a natural. Who would have thought? Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. I chose French because it's always been a dream of mine to one day take my family to Paris and see the Eiffel Tower. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts. Guys, I love it because it's not at all like learning from a book or a traditional class. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, videos, stories, and even games. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash invisible. That's babbel.com slash invisible for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. (laughs) 
In the early 90s, Aaron Stark was a shy young man entering his adolescence. At around age 11, he started writing poetry, but still largely kept to himself and stayed true to his pastime of burying his head in a good X-Men comic book. He didn't have a brand new starter football jacket or a fresh pair of DC sneakers like most boys did each September when school season came around. He was lucky to have hand-me-downs that fit and was often seen wearing the same dingy old jacket from the thrift store that he had by then for years. His mother and stepdad were too caught up in their addiction to take proper care of the boys. Aaron and his brother were latchkey kids to the extreme, left to their own devices and to fend for themselves most of their childhood. Aaron soon began showering less. His hygiene was poor and he quickly became known as the smelly kid in class. He was bullied and his family was still moving around constantly as they were kicked out of one housing unit after another for non-payment while evading law enforcement. As a result, Aaron was always the new kid in class, adding one more reason to the long list of why it was so difficult for him to make friends. Classmates would often call him names and punch him as he walked by in the hallway, and he'd often come home with bruises. Aaron never cared to tell his parents, though. He knew it was pointless and that his mother wouldn't give a shit anyways. By then, the drug use in the home was worse than it had ever been, and Aaron was old enough to know by then that the white rocks his mother was smoking in the kitchen weren't medicine at all. One day, he and his brother decided they were going to put an end to it. They were going to destroy all of the drugs and paraphernalia. Me and my older brother decided to have an intervention on my parents because they were rocking up crack all the time and had their glass pipes everywhere. So while they were gone one day, we took their pipes and smashed them, threw them in the river behind their house. And we also threw in all their drugs. And then when they got home, we got the shit beat out of us for hours and hours because we destroyed their glass pipes and threw away hundreds of dollars worth of crack. Aaron's mother furiously beat the boys with one of their skateboards using the truck end of the steel axle that holds the wheels to the bottom of the deck. By now, Aaron was getting beat up both at school and at home. He began to despise his mother and stepfather, developing a deep-seated hatred that only grew as time went on. Aaron had a couple of other kids in school he talked to who were in similar situations as him, but not many. One afternoon after school let out, he was playing arcade games at a local comic book shop, when he bumped into another kid who looked much different than him. But after they got to talking, it was like they had the same brain. Unknowingly, this would become a pivotal moment for both of them, as Aaron had just met his future best friend, Mike Stacy. We met at a comic shop. We were actually playing the arcade version of Mortal Kombat 1. I realized that he lived at the other end of the block that I lived. And so I went to his house, hung out the rest of the day, and just never left. And we just became instant best friends. Mike came from a background completely opposite of Aaron's. When Aaron walked into Mike's house, it was like exploring an alternate universe he'd never even knew existed. He was raised in a very stable family that, like, he was very supported and loved. And, like, if he wanted, what he wanted to do, he could go do. And he would do, like, things that blew me away. Like, he wrote a Christmas list and got the stuff on his Christmas list. That was mind-blowing to me. I, I had no idea that was a thing. He was shocked. But perhaps most importantly, Aaron felt safe there something he'd never felt within the walls of his short-term residences with his own family. The two talked for hours the first day they met, chatting about video games, comic books, and even engaging in a deep existential conversation up in Mike's bedroom. 
For a couple of 12-year-olds, they clicked at a deep intellectual level. Mike didn't care that Aaron wasn't the most popular kid or that his clothes weren't the latest fashion, or even clean for that matter. He never judged him. They simply enjoyed each other's company and hung out like any other 7th graders would. Neither of them were fully aware at the time, but Mike would wind up being a godsend to Aaron. Aaron met Mike during one of the darkest periods of his life, when he needed someone the most. Nearly every other aspect of Aaron's life at that point had become a, quote, tsunami of pain, as he called it. Home life was hell, school was a nightmare, and the bullies he faced were becoming more ruthless than ever before. But by the time Aaron turned 13, he wasn't a kid anymore. He'd always been a bit overweight, which was just more ammunition for the kids that ridiculed him. But he was taller now, and he was stronger. Aaron was physically coming into his adult body. After puberty hit Aaron harder than the bullies did each day at school, he decided he was done letting that happen. He was now going to use his growing size to his advantage, and he did so for the first time during an incident in the gymnasium locker room. I was in gym class in one of the schools I was at, and a kid walked by and like slammed my head into the locker and busted my head open a little bit on the lock, the on the locker right there. The first time in my life I fought back, I snapped. I got up, walked over to the kid, I picked him up off of his feet and slammed him into the lockers about 30 times and broke his skull in four places. I fucked his world up and dropped him down into the into a pile on the floor and walked out of the gym. And everybody in the gym was just freaking out. They were all in the locker room. They're all just, just freaking out. We're all a bunch of preteens and I just fucking went ape shit on this kid. Like mauled him like a gorilla, slamming him back and forth into the corner of a wall. And that kind of was the flip in my brain that fighting back would protect me. Because after that, people stopped beating me up. The rest of that school year, everybody left me alone. After all the violence he'd been subjected to and surrounded by for years, Aaron recognized the power in retaliation that day in the locker room. No one was going to mess with him ever again, and for the first time in his life, he felt like he was in control of something. He soon began leaning into this new persona. He was going to be the big, scary dude who would pummel you if you even looked at him the wrong way. By age 14, Aaron was 6 feet tall and weighed 220 pounds. He was a big ninth grader, and while he was able to somewhat manage his social surroundings at school now, back at his mother's apartment, the violence was still a daily occurrence. One afternoon when Aaron was in his bedroom, he heard screams coming from down the hall. He swung his door open only to find his stepdad choking his mom attempting to render her unconscious. My stepdad has my mom up against the wall by the throat, a couple of feet off the ground. So I grab him, rip him off of her, slam him into the fridge, break the door off the fridge, turn around, slam him into the microwave, break the microwave in half. Then I slam him back into the back wall of the garage and start to push. And he is now up a couple inches off the ground. And I got him by one hand against his throat and the wall starts to bow out. I'm almost pushing through the garage wall. While I'm in the middle of fighting that, as I'm pushing against the wall, my mom is smashing me in the back of the head with plates because I'm attacking my stepdad, even though he was attacking her. And then I just drop him, go back to my bedroom, and sit back down and start watching TV. This sort of activity was nothing new. The only difference was that Aaron was a full-blown teenager now. A teenager filled with angst, testosterone, and resentment toward virtually everyone. That starts to express itself with everything else around me. So I get very aggressive with the people I'm around and I start to get very toxic. I start to insult people, lots of insult comedy. I get into like offensive jokes as much as I can, that kind of stuff. 
As a defense mechanism, Aaron would begin to say cruel things back at school. He was going to hurt you before you could hurt him, be it emotional or physical. One person he didn't hurt and was never hurt by was his friend Mike, Aaron's only constant true source of peace. When things got really bad, Aaron could escape to Mike's house for a couple of days, but he couldn't stay forever. Mike's parents sympathized with Aaron's situation, but eventually they'd say it was time for him to head back home, back to the place he hated the most. By now, Aaron had fully owned the alienation of his peers, wearing literal grime and filth like a suit of armor. Physically unappealing, so I'm dirty and I'm making myself like nasty and smell bad. And it kind of started to turn into a conscious thing to where I'm going to do this to make myself be what I feel like inside. The more I go into this area, the less people want to be around me. They're not around me. They're not going to hurt me. It wasn't long after this when Aaron would drop out of high school altogether. Although he was brighter than most and even had the ability to be at the top of his class, it's hard to find the motivation in a world where nobody cares about you. And so he stopped trying. Aaron soon found himself hanging out with a similar crew of outcasts. He began tripping on acid at age 15 and spent the majority of his time walking around Denver and not doing much of anything. Aaron's identity as the hardened metal kid soon earned him the title of, quote, unofficial leader to a degree. Other misfit youth and depressed teenagers from broken homes were naturally attracted to him. In the days of Marilyn Manson and Shock Rock, it was cool to dress in all black and rebel against anything mainstream. But for a lot of kids, this was all an act, a gimmick they mirrored from magazines or a slipknot lyric from a music video. Most of them went home to their parents and their nice life at the end of the day. Aaron Stark, on the other hand, did not. He was the genuine article and not by choice. Still, a handful of kids were enticed by his gloomy allure. Aaron called his expanding crew the Disaster Groupies, and they started hanging out in a sandpit-type ravine behind Casa Bonita. If you've ever seen the show South Park, Casa Bonita is the Mexican restaurant referenced in the cartoon. It's a very real place, and behind the restaurant, Cartman crashes Kyle's birthday party in episode 11 of the seventh season. Aaron Stark and his boys were smashing bottles and listening to Nine Inch Nails. They would hang out there for hours, shooting the shit while all the other kids were stuck in school. When Aaron couldn't sleep over at Mike's or deal with the craziness that was his mother's house, he would crash behind the Mexican restaurant, with nothing but his Salvation Army jacket to keep him warm. He'd walk to Albertson's, a grocery store that was in the same plaza, and would survive off free food samples for a day. Eventually, he would find a better place to stay than behind the Casa Bonita. One of the disaster groupies figured out that his father was never around after he started dating a new woman. He was always over at her place, and so the house became free reign. There was no adult supervision at the apartment, and Aaron and his crew essentially took it over. The group managed to crash on floors or couches for a couple months. A few of them even got jobs at a local pizza place, Aaron included. The manager of that pizza shop also happened to sell LSD at the time. Life soon became all about getting high, making pizzas, and smoking weed back at the disaster pad. The conversations that took place among the group were relatively standard for the most part, nothing particularly alarming to note. But eventually, the things they started talking about would shift, and the topics of discussion would take a very dark turn, and it happened on more than one occasion. And so instead of sitting around talking about 
sports or girls and friendly stuff like that in this group of people, we'd be sitting talking about killing people. Remember, the whole edgy goth aesthetic was very much a phase for a lot of these kids. Many would talk about committing murder for the sake of appearing to be a badass. Most of them weren't serious. However, some of them were. Aaron Stark happened to be one of those individuals who wasn't taking lightly to the concept. Like, if you're going to shoot a school, what would you do? If you're going to kill 10 people, how would you do it? And that became like, instead of planning out fantasy football, we plan out fantasy genocide. Around Aaron's 16th birthday, the party was over, at least at the disaster groupie headquarters. One night, the owner of the house came home to find over 10 kids tripping on acid in the apartment. Needless to say, that was that, and the band broke up, so to speak. Aaron went back to sleeping outside and occasionally stayed over at Mike's house. And if he exhausted all other options, he would stay at his mother's apartment. Understandably, Aaron became increasingly depressed during this period. He described his life as a psychological mosh pit that kept jostling him around and wouldn't stop. Unfortunately, it was also around this time, Aaron didn't know where else to turn except toward self-harm. When I cut myself, it was like reality. It was like painful realness that was mine. Like it was the only thing that stayed still when everything else was sloshing around. And it was terrible and it was destructive, but it was mine. I could control that, that emotion. I could control that, that pain and uh, nothing else I couldn't control it. And so it started getting bad. There was no comic book or video game that was going to help Aaron now. The feeling he got from cutting was like a calm high, but like any other drug, you inevitably come down. Eventually, you build a tolerance and need even more to feel the same. Aaron became addicted to this self-destructive behavior, having to cause even more physical pain each time in order to block out the emotional agony that had been compounding since he was a young boy. One night when he had no place to stay, Aaron quietly snuck into his old bedroom at his mother's house. He didn't want his mom or stepdad to know that he was there. He sat on his mattress and took out a box cutter. Turning to the only pain relief he knew, he started cutting again. Just then, his mother turned the corner from the hallway, looked into the room at her son, and gave a reaction that is truly beyond words. was upstairs in my bedroom, and I was cutting myself pretty bad. And my mom walked past the room and laughed. Rather than show any signs of concern that her 16-year-old son was slashing his wrist with a sharp blade, Aaron's mother chuckled. In her inebriated state, she yelled out something to the effect of, You're just doing that for attention. As she continued to laugh, she walked down the stairs to sit on the couch and watch TV. What Aaron did next could only be described as desperate, certainly coming from a place of outright hopelessness. I follow her down the stairs. I stand there and it's like, you think this is a fucking joke? And I have a big, thick box cutter style razor blade. And I hold up my arm and I just start hacking at it as hard as I possibly can to start chopping. After I did that, I just wrapped a t-shirt around my arm, went back upstairs, sat on my bed, and kept on playing video games. Never stitched him up, never saw a doctor. My mom never even came up to the room to see if I was okay. Aaron actually showed us these scars during our interview. Physical remnants that only begin to depict the sheer terror that was his life. It's evident that Aaron Stark's mental state had arrived to a place most of us are fortunate enough to never know. This was a cry for help that went out to a mother who was simply incapable of loving and supporting her son. 
Aaron thought he'd hit rock bottom, but he'd soon realize that there's always another floor of darkness one can fall to. Whether or not you're able to make it back once you get there is an entirely separate uncertainty altogether. dejected Aaron Stark had seemingly exhausted all of his resources in terms of places to stay. After his mother laughed in his face during the cutting incident, there was no way he was going back there. When things got real rather quickly, the disaster groupies were nowhere to be found. The harsh Denver winter was right around the corner, and sleeping behind the shopping plaza was a no-go if he could help it. The only person he could turn to in that moment of desperation was the only individual he could count on. That was Mike. Because Aaron wasn't allowed to stay with him long term, the two friends came up with a solution. Mike was able to sneak Aaron into the family's tool shed, where he could hang out for a few nights until he figured out where to go next. It was the shed behind his house. It was coming up to winter, and I was just really spinning out. And I was so dirty that if I was, I would go into Mike's house and sit down, and then his parents would clean the couch. When Aaron pretended to be leaving after hanging out with Mike inside of the house, he would take a short walk, turn around, make sure no one was looking, and then retreat back to the shed. It wasn't insulated or even fully enclosed, and there was a small gap where the walls would normally meet the roof. But he wasn't sleeping outside, and it wasn't his mother's house. As long as it didn't rain or snow, Aaron wouldn't get wet. There was an oversized red recliner the boys had put in there for him to use as his bed. After Mike's parents would fall asleep for the night, Mike would bring a plate of food out to Aaron in the backyard. He would, like, sneak me out dinner. Like, I'd be in a shed and he'd come sneak me down food. Like, hide it in his shirt and bring me out food in the shed. It turned into where if I didn't have anywhere at nighttime and I was absolutely, instead of being on the street, I'd go sleep in his chair in his shed. As long as he was gone before Mike's parents got up to go to work, Aaron was welcome to stay in the shed whenever he needed. And that became his routine. A few nights turned into that entire winter. Unfortunately, Aaron's intrusive thoughts kept creeping back in, and he soon started cutting again. The time he spent alone in the shed, reflecting, he remembers the self-harm quickly spiraling out of control, and he knew that he'd crossed the line. In in my shed, I'm cutting myself really bad, and it's like 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm in the chair, and the rain's coming down, because it's the start of winter, so it's like rain's mixed with snowflakes, and the pool of blood was just getting bigger and bigger and I'm like dripping blood off my arm, pool of blood under the ground. I'm like, I got it something, I'm going to die. If I don't get myself some help, I'm going to die. Aaron was dizzy from losing so much blood. He had cut too deep and wasn't sure if he needed medical attention. Unsure of what to do, he decided to contact social services instead of going to a hospital. He remembered where the building was in town from the multiple visits he'd had there as a child with his mother. Aaron woke up that next day and sought help. On the next morning, I knock on Mike's back door, got borrow a bus fare from his mom and borrow their phone book and called social services and set up an appointment for myself that afternoon. When I got there, they, social services, had called my mom and my mom got there. And so we all sit around a table and they ask, so what happened? How, what did you do? Why are you here? And so I pull out a bloody razor blade, a box cutter style razor blade, and throw it on the table. I say, that's what I'm here for. I show on my arm with fresh cuts on it. Like, I'm at the bottom. I feel like I'm nothing. I feel like I'm worthless. And my mom... Gets him to believe that I'm just making it all up. She says, well, you know, he's just, he does it for attention. He does this all the time. It's nothing. And they sent me home with my mom. The last thing Aaron wanted to do was get his mom involved. Never mind be driven back to her house. A 
but something she said to Aaron on that awkward drive home would set him off, burrowed deeply beneath his skin and into his very soul. As we're driving away, we get like two blocks away from the place. He turns to me and she snarls like, you should do a better job next time I'll buy you the razor blades. After his mother ridiculed him again for what she viewed as a comedic and futile suicide attempt, Aaron withdrew. From this point forward, he had a new mission, to make anyone and everyone around him feel as worthless as he did. I was like, okay, fuck that. That dark that kind of wrapped around me like a blanket and it was like my identity, I just dove headlong into that shit now. Like For the next nine months, I went on what I call scorched earth, where I was destroying every bit of positive that I had. Aaron's attitude became vicious. He berated and snapped back miserably at anyone who came close to him, even turning on his best friend, Mike. Burning down every friend, even Mike, trying to do everything I could to be as toxic and as nasty to him as possible, and just every group I could possibly think of trying to destroy it. I'm at the very, very bottom. But as we've said before, that bottom can always go just a tad lower. Even so, Aaron felt as though he had nothing left, which included his will to live. He began to gather every photo that he could find of himself and toss them into a fire he'd made behind the Casa Bonita. He was wiping any trace of himself from the earth. He'd already felt as though he didn't exist and wanted to make sure he'd forgotten completely. Aaron knew at that moment that he wasn't going to be around much longer. He was homeless again and was sleeping back at the ravine behind the Casa Bonita. Aaron stayed there several nights, not even taking his shoes off before laying his head down to sleep in the dirt. Before he knew it, it was winter in Colorado again. One morning after a cold front swept through the field, Aaron woke up but couldn't feel his face. He had nearly frozen to death. I felt like I was having a seizure the entire time I was walking, like I was shaking so much from the cold. My body was just shivering, twitching. I could barely breathe. Instinctively, Aaron began trudging on foot with no destination in mind. Suddenly, he remembered a building that was next to North Denver High School a school he had dropped out of his freshman year. He had a flash of a sign that read mental health and wondered if it was still there. He didn't know what the purpose of that facility ever was, but Aaron walked toward the building. He was going to give himself one last chance to survive. I didn't know much about it. I didn't know what they were for. I just know it said mental health, and I wasn't going to warn him. I wasn't going to warn him that was coming, because last time they brought my mom, I'm not doing that shit again. I'm just going in cold. I need to get myself some help. So I knock on the door, and it was a therapy place. And they had me meet a young woman, early 20s. And I don't really remember much about that conversation, because all I really remember is the end. And the last thing that she said to me was, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. I can't help. That was it. He had finally broken through that last floor of a rock bottom he thought he'd already reached, time and time again. There was no going back and there was no moving forward. Turning Aaron Stark away from treatment that day simply marked the end for him and whoever he chose as his victims. I walked out that door and I felt my brain shatter. That's the moment I felt my brain break like a mirror, just snap. I found out what was at the bottom of that tsunami. All that chaos disappears. It gets really quiet and it gets really still and all the chaos kind of evaporates. There's nothing left to care about. I have nothing left to lose. You're going to cut my arm off, I'm going to die. You're going to kill me, I'll be dead. You're going to put me in jail, they're going to feed me. I don't have any more doubt. So that instantly, I got, like a calm came over me. Aaron's mind instantly went back to those conversations he had had with his so-called friends a few months before. The discussions involving murder, weapons of choice, and ways in which they would kill the most people. However, it wasn't just teenagers talking anymore. 
and the concept was never just a hypothetical for Aaron. He was now going to act on the urge. And then the plan crystallized in my head, like right away. I knew what I was going to do. I talked about it with those disaster people. I was either going to attack the school food court or the mall food court. He'd already made up his mind. Aaron Stark was going to commit mass murder. He didn't care who his victims were. They didn't even have to be people who had wronged him. All that mattered was that the body count was high and that he would cause as much suffering as humanly possible. Whether it was the food court or the school cafeteria would be determined only by what time of day he would get his hands on the gun. After 17 long years of being abused both physically and psychologically, Aaron Stark decided he would shoot up his former high school. If all went according to plan, he too would be killed in the process. The plan was to kill as many people as possible and die while doing it, because neither place was a soft target. The high school had a uniformed armed police officer stationed in it at all times, and this mall literally had a police station a couple doors down from the food court. So I was planning on dying by suicide by cop. Aaron knew many people on the fringes of society in North Denver. A lot of that can be credited to his mother and stepdad. And it wouldn't be hard for him to find a gun. Metal detectors in schools weren't even a precaution in the 1990s until Columbine happened a few years later. At the time, low-level gangbangers didn't hesitate showing off a pistol in the school's hallway or brag about keeping one in their locker. Aaron knew those kids. He also knew at the very least he would be able to enter the school and begin firing. Whatever happened after that didn't much matter to him. Aaron was a street kid. If he asked the right person to get him a gun, they would get him a gun. That was the exact arrangement he had set up. The kids with the guns sold drugs to my family and bought drugs from my family. So they knew I wasn't a narc. They knew me. So I walked up to him like, hey, can you get me a gun? Hopefully one that shoots a lot of bullets. I was like, yeah, sure. Give me an ounce of weed. That's the easiest part of the entire thing. I went to my mom's house, the drug he was sleeping on the floor with three or four ounces in his pocket, ready to, bagged up, ready to sell. I grabbed one of the ounces, took it to the dude, like, here you go. He's like, all right, man, give me, give me three days, I'll get that for you. It was a done deal. After robbing his mother's friend of an ounce of weed in exchange for a firearm, Aaron had nothing left to do but wait. In three days' time, he would pick up the gun and walk into a building filled with his former classmates and open fire. He didn't even yet know what kind of gun it would be or what caliber. All he knew was that he was going to kill several people indiscriminately. Instead of stewing in anger over the next few days, Aaron decided to visit a few of his closest peers, to say sorry of all things. This surprised the few people he knew. That's because the reality was that Aaron was actually saying goodbye. After doing his rounds and with a milk crate filled with comic books, Aaron stopped at the last house. He was going to give away his most prized possessions to the one person he knew would appreciate them, his most faithful and loyal friend, Mike Stacy. In that time, I went to Mike's house. And so when he opened up the door, he brought me in and he treated me like I was a person. And at the time, I didn't feel human. And he brought me in. It was like setting the tiny granular bits of humanity on the bottom shelf of my existence. I just broke down in tears. I just broke down, started crying. And I didn't talk about why I was crying. He just let me sit next to him and cry for hours. I just sat and cried. And eventually he was like, dude, are you okay? You gonna be okay? I'm like, yeah, I'll be, I'll be better. He's like, all right, well, I'm gonna make you some food. Mike didn't even ask what was wrong. He knew. He hated Aaron's family almost as much as Aaron did. Mike had seen his stepdad beat his mother on several occasions. He knew what Aaron's life looked like from the outside looking in. All that Aaron needed now was a friend. 
Even when he had pushed Mike away, he was still there for him. His door was always open, even if it was the door to a tool shed. In that moment, sitting there on Mike's parents' couch eating a sandwich his buddy had just made him, Aaron Stark remembered that there was still some good in the world and that he was loved, even if just by one person. Aaron didn't tell him about the planned shooting. They never spoke about his plan to commit murder and then suicide. They just talked, hanging out the same way they always had when they first met back in the seventh grade. And like, he didn't, we didn't have to address it. We didn't have to go over the details about what the pain was and what the hell was. He just was able to be with me. And, and afterwards, we never really talked about the details about, about why I showed up there in tears. And it was more just, you're going to be okay, man. You're a good kid in the shit world. You're going to be okay. Fuck that family. You're going to be all right. When the day had finally arrived to meet up with the drug dealer and exchange the weed for the weapon, Aaron never showed up. Less than 48 hours before he was set to go on a killing rampage, Aaron Stark had a moment of clarity, and all it took was a little compassion from an old friend. Mike Stacy did nothing but treat Aaron like a human being that day something that no one else had done except for him. Mike wouldn't know until many years later that he'd saved Aaron's life that day, nor did he know about the countless potential other lives he had inadvertently saved. But Aaron did keep that ounce of weed in his coat pocket. He stayed at Mike's parents' house for that entire week, enjoying his friend's company and flipping through a milk crate of X-Men comic books. Even his dad, he chokes me up because he, he was the only person in my entire life they would ever ask me what I wanted to be or what my dreams were or what my goals were. And he would ask me all the time. He'd be like, so dude, what do you want to do? What do you want to be when you grow up? And my answer was usually, I don't want to be when I grow up. And, but he would still ask. And he would say, dude, you, you have all this potential. You can do all this shit. Just, just do something. Just pick a, pick a direction and move and you're going to be great. Aaron Stark almost threw his life away at 17 years old. Thankfully, he didn't, but he wasn't able to avoid returning to that familiar darkness. Just because his friend told him everything was okay didn't mean that it actually was. This wasn't a movie, and things were not magically all good after that. Aaron's life was still completely upside down and would remain that way for many years to come. After high school, Mike went off to college while Aaron was stuck back in their hometown. He didn't have a high school diploma and had very little opportunities. He started to feel lost again. Ultimately, Aaron had no choice but to move back in with his mother and stepfather. The violence and drug use had never stopped or slowed down, even after all those years. And as unfortunate as it was after Mike left, his family was all he had, even if it wasn't much at all. Aaron had convinced himself he no longer had an interest in taking his anger out on others, the thoughts of hurting himself and taking his own life continued haunting him. My 19th birthday, I was planning on committing suicide. I was going to kill myself by drug overdose. I was very depressed. I, the, the hell at home had gotten really bad. I was remorseful for what I had planned from before. I was planning on just ending my life by taking a whole bunch of drugs and dying in the field behind Cosmini. And so I got a bunch of LSD, whole bunch of uh, cocaine from my mom and a whole bunch of bottles of pills, like way more drugs than we needed to do the job. And I was carrying around in my pocket. And so during the day, I was trying to act like nothing different was happening. Like I, did, I had interventions in the past, didn't want anybody to intervene anymore. So I was just trying to act like I was normal. So I went to Mike's house 
and Mike is a social guy. Mike has a friend of his own named Amber. Amber was always really friendly with me, but Amber was his contact. She was his buddy. So we would go to kick it at Amber's house occasionally, hang out. She was really nice. So he's like, we're going to go see Amber today. I'm like, okay, okay, cool. I'm going to go listen to music, go watch a movie. And then I go end my life at the end of the night. And I think that's a great last day. But instead, I get there and it was actually a surprise birthday party for me. The lights flickered on to reveal a small group of Aaron's friends who yelled surprise as he walked through the door. A homemade blueberry pie with 19 candles illuminated the small home as his friends' faces smiled brightly back at his. After the glowing disbelief had subsided, Aaron excused himself to the restroom where he would quietly proceed to flush the drugs down the toilet. That was the very last time Aaron Stark ever contemplated suicide. Not long after Aaron turned 19, Mike would offer his friend the best gift he could have ever asked for, a place to stay. Mike invited Aaron to come live with him at college. He told him not to worry about money and that he could crash on the couch of his campus apartment until he figured out his next move. Mike just wanted to see his friend have a chance for once because he knew what Aaron was capable of. Turns out leaving his toxic family behind in Denver would be the best decision Aaron's ever made. He became independent for the first time. It was like being given a second chance, a new lease on life to be whoever he wanted to be. Years later, Aaron would meet a woman named Becky, who would eventually become his bride. They went on to have children, purchase a home, and live a happy life together, which is what they're doing in Denver now to this very day. Aaron became a dedicated father with one goal in mind, to break the cycle of abuse and trauma. He was going to make damn sure he was nothing like his own parents and that his children grew up in a loving home, the kind of home he never had. Twenty-five long years would pass before anyone knew that Aaron Stark had once intended to shoot up a high school when he was just 17. He never told a soul, not his best friend Mike, not even his wife. He held on to that guilt for years and saw it as a dark stain on his troubled past. It was a shameful secret Aaron kept all to himself, fearful that if anyone found out, his current relationships would be affected or ruined forever. But on Valentine's Day of 2018, that all changed. While he and his family were sitting around the television, a breaking news headline flashed across the screen. I'm Kristen Dahlgren in New York, and we are coming on the air at this hour with news of a school shooting in South Florida. This took place in Parkland, Florida, at Douglas High School. No word yet on casualties, but the reporter is still at large. We have been watching students coming out of that high school, their hands in many cases uh, in the air. Also, heavy tactical teams are on the ground. Again, the shooter still at large. It was the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting where 17 innocent people were gunned down in cold blood. As Aaron continued watching the horror that was being reported live on TV, something struck a chord, something that didn't sit well with him. And I see a reporter asking this kid who's covered in blood, how did that make you feel? And it just pissed me off. Like, how the fuck do you think that made him feel happy? They're joyous. They're, they're just in, they're enraptured right now. What the fuck kind of ant question is that? And so I went to the back and wrote a Facebook post. And that's the first time I ever wrote that I was almost a school shooter. Aaron felt it was time he shared his story, if for nothing else, for his own sanity. 
When he saw that student being interviewed with blood spatter across his shirt, he remembered his own former classmates, the people he almost killed. In addition to why he hadn't spoken up until that point, Aaron feared his stepdad would violently attack his mother had the truth come out about his childhood. Thankfully for everyone involved, around the time Aaron went public with his story, his stepdad died in a manner Aaron could only describe as poetic justice. In the most fitting way possible, in a pool of his own filth, him and my mom were having a drunken argument, cracked out argument. He went to the bathroom, had an aneurysm, collapsed in the bathroom, shit all over himself, laid in the bathroom for the next three hours. My mom yelled at him from the living room about how much of a piece of shit he was. I can't think of a more fitting way for him to end. Aaron never expected that Facebook post to get as much attention as it did. But sure enough, it went viral in what felt like the blink of an eye. I literally went overnight from thinking that if anybody ever found this out, they'd hate me, to getting messages from all over the planet. Every message, every country I can think of. And it wasn't just, hey, that's a cool story, but hey, that's a cool story, and here's my diary, and here's all the pain that I ever went through, and here's the abuse that I suffered. And it was really eye-opening. The local paper even contacted Aaron to do an interview. Before he knew it, he was on just about every talk show under the sun. He'd also go on to share his story in what became one of the most popular TED Talks of all time. He was even featured in Time magazine. And then, another light bulb went off. But unlike the epiphany he had when he could beat up his bullies, Aaron realized he could use his past trauma for good. He could mold that pain and turn it into something positive. From that moment on, Aaron had a new purpose, one that was the opposite of destruction. He was going to help lost kids just like him find their way. In a lot of ways, Aaron was going to become who Mike was for him to kids all across the globe. He went on to found a Facebook page called You Are Not Alone. The group currently has over 3,000 members, and Aaron personally provides resources, emotional support, and anonymity for young people seeking help before it's too late. We're up to the mid-30s of prevented suicides and my, from my Facebook group. We have prevented three school shootings that I, can, that I know of, and um, I have helped more than 10 people leave white nationalism. This has become his life's work. As for Aaron's mom, she is still around, though he's chosen not to maintain a relationship with her. He doesn't talk to his older brother either. Unfortunately, he went down a similar path as the rest of the family. These days, Mike Stacy is a web developer in Denver, Colorado, and he and Aaron are still best friends, tight as ever to this day. He told us that he owes Mike for everything, and that if it wasn't for him, he quite literally wouldn't be here speaking with us for this interview. He is still the best friend I've ever had to this day. And he's the only person in the world where if he insulted my wife, I'd be like, well, baby, what'd you do to make him call you a name? Because he's just, he's, he's earned that in my life. When Aaron isn't spending time with his wife or children or working his regular nine to five as a store manager, he's on the road. He travels to schools, conferences, and more, telling his story to anyone who's willing to listen. Having the opportunity to speak with Aaron Stark has provided invaluable insight from a true crime perspective. As a society, our interests are usually vested in the wake of tragedies, after people are already dead and it's too late to do anything about it. But if we look at Aaron's childhood development, there is something that can be done. His trajectory and where he ended up wasn't sudden. It took years for those conditions to nurse a pending catastrophe, until one day that powder keg was about to explode. Had Mike not intervened, the apocalypse would have arrived at North Denver High School. 
Aaron says that the environment that kids like him are brought up in is what we should be paying attention to most. If a person is trained to be an animal, we can't be surprised when they lash out like one. Lucky for Aaron and his intended victims, intellect, perseverance, and situational awareness superseded a violent reaction and an emotional explosion in this case. He told us that when he was fantasizing about the shooting in his mind, he wasn't murdering his fellow students. He was killing his parents. He was imposing his mother and stepfather's face on every student he was going to kill. They represented mere collateral damage for the pain his own family had caused. At the end of the day, we're all conscious beings. We all yearn for love and human connection. If more kids in this world can feel like they're actually worth a damn, well then, sometimes that's all it takes. Showing compassion won't prevent every murder, obviously. There will always be homicides in our society. But choosing to be a decent human being and exercising a little empathy in your everyday interactions with those around you may actually make a difference in the life of someone stuck in their own eerily quiet hell. Mike Stacy and Aaron Stark are living proof of that. person that you think deserves love the least is the one that you should be giving love to. The one that you have the worst opinion of, the one that you have the most bias against, remember that that person is also a person too. And even the worst monster didn't get, wasn't born in the pitch black. Everybody had to get there. Thank you everyone so much for listening and a special thank you to Aaron Stark for giving us such a powerful, raw look into his life and for sharing his perspective. If you can't get enough of Invisible Choir, sign up for Invisible Choir Premium today at patreon.com slash invisible choir. Right now, we have over 200 premium episodes available for immediate binging, along with special bonus question and answer videos, guest interviews, physical perks in the mail, and even two ridiculous investigative series where I enlist you, our listeners, to solve some of the internet's most infamous and horrific cases. That partner show is called Invisible Choir Uncensored, and it's available to our confidential informant tier supporters. And before you go, if you have just a moment, please, please, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us grow and helps the show get discovered by more listeners, and we would be grateful if you took the time. See you next time, everyone.